All right, if you'll stand with me and turn this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 3. We're going to read verses 23 through 26. As Pastor Bruce in this new series, The Cross of Christ, asked the question this morning, what did the cross mean to God? Again, we're in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. You can find this on page 649 in the Pew Bible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, this morning we just come again and we thank you for the cross and what it represents. Lord, may you speak through our word this morning, through your word, and God, just teach us, Lord, what the cross meant to you, God, what it means to our lives, and Lord, how we can um, take the message to a world um, that this cross, God, brings salvation. In Christ's name, amen. As we, as we begin this series this morning, let, let me begin with just a, a simple question, not for you to answer verbally, but just to kind of answer in your mind. When, when you see a cross, and there's crosses all across our world today, um, you know, what comes to your mind? What do you think of when you see a cross? What does it mean to you? What do you think it meant to God? What did the cross mean to, to Jesus Christ, perhaps? Even what did the cross mean to Satan himself? These are kind of the questions we're going to begin to answer in this series on the cross. Is what does it mean? Uh, from a biblical perspective, what took place on the cross is the most uh, single important event in all of history. No other event can even come close in comparison to what happened that day on the cross of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting, Oswald Chambers once said, all of heaven is interested in the cross of Christ, all of hell is terribly afraid of it, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore its meaning. That's somewhat ironic especially when you look around our landscape today and our culture, and it's fairly common to see people wearing a cross. In fact, you'll see some photos up here on the the screen. And and some people wear a cross around their neck as jewelry. Um, Some people wear a cross uh, as a tattoo. That's becoming really popular here in the last decade, Uh, whether that tattoo's on an arm, a back, or even on, uh, for ladies, they put cross tattoos on their ankle or feet. Um, In in some crosses, they're really ornate, they're elaborate, while other crosses are very simple and they're small. And uh, ladies may wear just a little simple cross as a pendant, as a piece of jewelry. And I'm sure, you know, different people wear the cross for for a variety of reasons, most of which probably has nothing to do with the true meaning of the cross. Erwin Lutzer writes in his book, Christ on the Cross, he says, the cross is widely misunderstood in our day. I couldn't agree more with that first statement that he says. I don't think most people have a clue what the cross is all about, the significance of it, what it truly means. 
and what it can mean to us personally in our lives today and for all eternity. He goes on and he says, this can be proven by the fact that it is well nigh impossible to find anyone who will say anything bad about the cross. The cross is worn as a pendant by athletes, new agers, and rock stars. This instrument of indescribable cruelty and death is now a symbol of unity, tolerance, and spirituality of every kind. The offense of the cross, as Paul put it, has long since vanished as its message is reinterpreted to fit the modern mind. So many who wear the cross around their necks would be scandalized if they understood its meaning. And so that's my whole goal in this series for us, beginning today in the next three weeks, is to answer one simple question. What does the cross mean? We see it around us. We even may wear it. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong to wear the cross. But what does it mean? What's the significance of the cross? And in order to answer this question, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the cross from five points of view. We're going to look at it and ask the question, what the cross meant to God? And we'll do that this morning. What the cross meant to Satan? What the cross meant to Jesus Christ? What the cross means to the world in general? And then on Sunday night of April 17th, Uh, We're going to answer our final question of what the cross should mean to us as believers. What it means to the church. And why I say Sunday night on April 17th is uh, because that's when we're going to have what is called a love feast and Lord's Supper. Kind of a a climax and a conclusion to this series. And uh, in fact, I invite you all to mark your calendar. Be a part of that time on Sunday evening down in our multi-purpose room uh, where we come as a church family and uh, have a meal together, what we call a love feast, and then take time to really reflect on the meaning of the cross, reflect on the significance in our own personal lives by taking part in communion or the Lord's Supper. And so I want to invite you to mark your calendars for that, April 17th. And uh, in fact, if I can put a little uh, promo in, uh, you see there we need help for, to pull this off. We need people to brew bring food. The church will provide all the meat and mashed potatoes, green beans, rolls, and drinks, but we're asking you all to to bring a side dish, a dessert, and whatnot, and we need some people to help come early and serve and uh, help stay late and clean up. And so there's a sign-up on the back table, and you can uh, sign up to take part of that. But I hope you'll come for that Sunday night as well, as, and also be a part of this whole series as, as we look at this question and try to answer this question, what does the cross mean? So this morning, we want to begin by asking, what happened on the cross from God's point of view? What did it mean to God the Father as His Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross? Now, one of the benefits of looking at the cross, not from our human point of view, but from God's point of view, is that the cross compels us. It even forces us to consider the gravity of sin and the majesty of God. It forces us, it compels us to consider these two realities. In fact, these two realities are so important that we can never fully understand the meaning of the cross until we come to grips, listen to me, with the gravity of our sin and the majesty of God's holiness. 
In fact, I'll go so far as to say if we diminish either one of these, if we diminish the gravity of sin or if we diminish the majesty of God, take either one and diminish them in either way, listen, we diminish the power of the cross. We diminish the significance of the cross. And in so doing, we diminish the heart of the gospel. Paul states up front in our passage of Scripture that Craig uh, Craig Kirk read for us, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul states a universal problem for all of mankind. And the problem is simply this, in Paul's own words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the universal problem of mankind. All of us have sinned. No exceptions. That was Paul's whole point in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And the outworking of our sin is that we fall short of God's glory. We fall short of His majesty, His holiness. And there's nothing we can do on our own to overcome this problem. There's nothing we can do to solve this problem on our own. D.A. Carson is a professor and, and an author of several books. He, uh, and he ha- speaks to college students at, on college campuses and universities across our nation, even around the world. And he speaks uh, numerous times. And uh, it's one of the, the ministries that D.A. Carson does. And in one of his books, he, he says that the hardest truth to get across when speaking to, to college students is not the truth that God exists. It's not even the truth about the deity of Jesus Christ. But the hardest truth to get across is what the Bible says about sin. Listen to what he writes in his book, Scandalous. He says, and I quote, Sin is generally a snicker word. You say it and everybody snickers. There's no shame attached to it. It is so hard to get across how ugly sin is to God. When I talk about sin, I have, quote, gone to meddling. I'm not talking about external ideas people may or may not believe. I'm talking about the category they feel they must repudiate. They sometimes become so indignant with this notion of sin that I must spend a lot of time talking about it. Why? Because we live in an age today. We live in a culture where the one wrong thing to say is that somebody is is sinful. That they're wrong. Because what sin is to one person is not sin to another person. And yet the Bible clearly states that we all have sinned. And the outworking of our sin is that we fall short of God's majesty. We fall short of His holiness and His righteousness. But not only does the Bible insist that there is such a thing as the gravity of our sin. It also insists that the heart of its ugly offensiveness is how it offends our holy God. It's interesting. Because we're all sinful, when we relate to one another, we're not so much offended by each other's sin. What do I care how Bill lives? Right? And that's kind of the world's attitude. It's even we get caught up in that attitude about sin. We're all in the same boat, so hey, 
What do I care what you do? That's fine for you. I'm doing my thing and living my life. But folks, that is viewing the cross from a human perspective. We have to view it from God's perspective. And when we do, we're compelled to view it and to consider the gravity of our sin, not in relation to humanity, but in relation to a holy God. And my sin, first and foremost, offends Him. And that's what's most important. Why? Because who is my creator? God. And because God is my creator, when I die, who am I going to answer to? God. It's Him that I'm accountable to. And it's Him that I offend, first and foremost, with my sin. And that is why the essential background to the cross is not only the gravity of my sin, but it's God's just response to my sin. You see, God's holiness exposes our sin. And His wrath opposes it. So sin cannot approach God. We cannot approach God in our sin. And God cannot tolerate sin. So, let's step back and kind of summarize this for a moment. Because what we have is one massive problem on our hands. My sin, our sin, and God's wrath, His response to my sin, listen, it stands in the way of God forgiving us of our sin. It stands in the way of God reconciling us to Himself. That's a problem. And if that problem is not dealt with, we are doomed for eternity. We are doomed to an eternal place called hell forever and ever. Unless the problem that we are born into is dealt with. So what is the answer? How shall we get right with God and be saved from our sin? How can a holy God justify us then without compromising His own righteousness and without condoning our sinfulness? I mean, does God just then overlook our sin? Because after all, God is a God of love. Or does He deal with it? And if so, how? Well, the answers to all those questions are found on the cross. So let's look at what the cross meant to God. Three simple points here. They're simple, and yet they're powerful. They're life-changing if you will embrace them in a personal way. Number one, what did the cross mean to God? It means God's wrath has been turned away. God's wrath has been turned away. Look again what it says in Romans 3, verses 24 and 25. Look with me, either in your Bibles or it's printed in your notes there. It says, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation. If you have an NIV translation, that word propitiation uh, is translated as sacrifice of atonement. It means the same thing. So God set forth Jesus Christ to be a propitiation or sacrifice of atonement by His blood through faith. Now, God's wrath is upon me, it's upon you, it's upon us. Why? Because of our sin. But that wrath, what Paul is telling us, has been turned away because God sent His Son to be a 
propitiation for us. Now, I, I, I understand few people have probably heard, first of all, the word propitiation. Uh, and fewer still probably understand what it means. And that's all right. Uh, let, me, let me explain it to you just a little bit here. Propitiation, that word, or sacrifice of atonement, it's a powerful word. It's a, it's a critically important word in the New Testament that is used in various forms to describe the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, in your notes here, here's what it means, a simple definition of propitiation. It means to turn away wrath by the offering of a gift. To turn away wrath by the offering of a gift. And in this context of what Paul's talking about here in Romans, propitiation then is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross by which he satisfied God's justice and turned away God's wrath so that God can now extend mercy and grace to us as sinners. Are you getting the picture here, the idea? God is rectifying the problem we have as sinners. He's doing it through his son on the cross. Now let's be honest here for a moment. God's wrath is not a popular topic these days, is it? In fact, even among so-called evangelical Christians, God's wrath is not a popular topic. We're not comfortable talking about the wrath of God. We'd rather hear about God's love than about his wrath. But, folks, listen to me. We will never, never understand. We will never fully appreciate what Christ did on the cross if we don't acknowledge the reality of God's wrath, which, by the way, is his holy and righteous response towards sin. Now, With this in your mind, there's two facts I want us to consider here. The first fact is this. As magnificent as God's love is, and oh, is it magnificent, it cannot cancel God's wrath towards sin and sinners. While it is true that God is love, listen to me, it is also true God is holy and just. You cannot separate God's holiness apart from his righteousness and that he is love. And so while God certainly loves sinners, after all, we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved the world enough that he sent his son to die on the cross. Listen, love is not God's only response to sin and sinners. All you have to do is check out the book of I mean, the, uh, yeah, check out the book of Psalms. Read through the book of Psalms, and, and you will discover that God, I want to use this word intentionally, hates sin and sinners. Listen to one, two verses here. Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5 says, O oh God, you take no pleasure in wickedness. You cannot tolerate the slightest sin. Now, that flies in the face of our irrelevance and our age of tolerance, doesn't it? Therefore, the proud will not be allowed to stand in your presence, for you hate all who do evil. 
Listen, if all we say to a lost person is, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, we are in danger of giving them the impression that their continued rebellion against God doesn't matter. There's no consequences. Why? Because God loves you. And that's why we must also warn them of God's wrath to come and to repent before it's too late. God has responded in His majesty, which includes in love, but also in wrath. Now, we may think that God's love and His wrath are are incompatible. They, They can't be reconciled together, but there's no conflict between the two. Because God is holy, He's angry over our sin. And because God is love, he provided, listen, this is so cool, he provided a means to turn away his wrath by the offering of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, how can we begin to get a grasp of this? Because right now, what I, what I know, because I know for myself, these are just like concepts hanging up in the air and floating around. So how can we take this concept of God's wrath, his love, this term propitiation, and bring it down to where we can kind of begin to understand it. We can maybe visualize it a little bit. One of the greatest ways, the greatest illustration of this idea of propitiation comes from the Old Testament Day of Atonement that you can read about in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. Let me explain it to you. Once a year, one time a year, on the, quote, Day of Atonement the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And he would enter in with the blood of a goat. And he would carefully take the goat blood and he would sprinkle it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant was made of pure gold and it was called, the anybody know? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. Now, inside the ark was a copy of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, although it was ten, it represented all of God's law that God had set up for his chosen people, the nation of Israel, to abide by. And by the sprinkling of the blood, the sins of the people were, quote, covered, and that covering by means of blood was called the atonement. And that sacrifice of blood turned away the wrath of God. Now you say, oh, okay, fine. Why is this so important? Because God's justice, His majesty that includes His justice, demands death. It demands a payment. And death is the ultimate punishment for sin. So on every other day of the year, what did God see when He looked down at the Ark of the Covenant? God saw the Ten Commandments inside the ark. And those Ten Commandments stood as a testimony against the sins of the nation of Israel. Because who can keep the commandments, right? And do so perfectly. Can you keep the Ten Commandments? We we do sometimes. But who can keep those commandments perfectly? No, the law. Those commandments reveal to us, listen, man, I got a problem I got to deal with. I'm not perfect. And so when God looks down, he saw the Ten Commandments inside the ark, which represents the sins of the nation of Israel. But oh, on that day of atonement, 
God didn't see the broken law. Instead, God saw what? The blood of the sacrifice which covered the sins of the people of Israel and therefore his wrath was turned away from his people. Now, there's only one major problem with all this. It only lasted for a year. Remember, they did it once a year. The Day of Atonement provided temporary forgiveness because it was based on the blood of animals, which is impossible to take away our sin. That is why every year, year after year, year after year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and do the same thing over and over again. The Old Testament sacrificial system, listen, it provided no permanent forgiveness for sin. It only pointed to something far greater. And you say, what was that something far greater? I'm glad you asked. That something far greater, listen to me, is the propitiation, the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, how cool is that? You see, when Jesus died on the cross, the blood that he shed was like the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the, uh, Ark of the Covenant. It turned away the wrath of God, and it covered the sins of the whole world. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And folks, in that moment, something happened that we can't fully explain and we don't fully understand. All we know is that the wrath of God, all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And Paul tells us he became sin for us. And in that moment, God turned his face away from his own son. Now you have to wonder, Man, why did God do it this way? God's the creator. He's all-powerful. Why would God choose this way? Because as an infinite God of infinite holiness, all sins are committed against him, are infinite in magnitude. So only a gift of infinite value could turn away the infinite wrath of God. And only God himself could offer such an infinite gift in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why my measly efforts to turn aside God's wrath are doomed to failure. I can't do it. And neither can you. If we think that going to church or being baptized or stopping a bad habit or trying to be a better person will somehow turn away God's wrath. Listen, we are in for a big surprise. You see, the wonder of propitiation is that God, listen to me, who has every right to respond in wrath towards sin and sinners, offers the sacrifice of his own son to turn away his wrath, thus making it possible for guilty sinners like us here this morning to be forgiven of our sin and to be reconciled into a relationship with God Almighty. That's what the cross means to God the Father. 
Which brings us to our second fact to consider. That when we come to God through Christ, we come to a gracious Father, not to an angry God. Listen, so many people live in fear of God. Because they think He's an... He's this angry God in the sky. He's this cosmic killjoy, and he's trying to hurt them or even get even with them. What a perversion of God's character. Listen, propitiation teaches us that what ought to be a judgment seat has now been turned into a mercy seat through the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting. You can go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5. And the word propitiation there is translated as mercy seat. We come to a merciful Father through Jesus Christ. And so now when we come to God through Jesus, we come to a gracious and merciful Father who accepts us on the basis of His Son's sacrifice on the cross. Of course, if we choose to reject God's propitiation, and who is the propitiation? It's His Son, Jesus Christ, and if we choose, if we reject the sacrifice and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, how will God respond then toward us as sinners? Listen, we will pay the penalty of it. We will pay the death penalty, except it will be death for eternity. He will respond in His judgment. So what did the cross mean to God? It first means God's wrath has been turned away. And for that we say, Amen, Hallelujah, Woo! Go on, whatever you want to say. God's wrath has been turned away. But number two, just as important, God's justice was publicly demonstrated. His justice was publicly demonstrated. Now here's the question. Why did God send His Son Jesus to die on the cross? You ever thought about that, wondered that question? Why did God send His Son Jesus to die on the cross? The most popular answer, the most common answer is because God loves us. And that is certainly true. But God's love, as I already said, is not the only reason God sent His Son to die. It's not the only reason God sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Notice what Paul goes on to say in Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. Look at it with me. He says, Whom God set forth, speaking of Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation by His blood through faith, and here's the key verse, to demonstrate His righteousness. Some of your translations may have the word justice even there. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. You see, God sent Jesus to die on the cross. Get this. Please get this. First and foremost, to demonstrate His righteousness or His justice. That word demonstrate, it's an interesting word. And it means pointing out with a finger. Demonstrate. It's almost as if God is pointing his finger at the cross and he's saying, look, man, there's the proof. There's the proof of my righteousness. There's the proof of my justice in this world. 
But doesn't this make you wonder why would God need to demonstrate his justice to the world? I mean, he's God after all. Why does he need to demonstrate this? Well, we find the answer in the last phrase of verse 25 when Paul writes, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. In other words, while God judged some of the sins in the Old Testament, and how did God judge can you remember some, uh, some times when God judged some of the sins in the Old Testament? The very first way he judged it was in Genesis, the flood. That was the judgment of the world's sin. You go further on in Genesis, and of course man doesn't learn from their history. And so Lot is living in what city? Sodom and Gomorrah. And what are Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh man, they're, they're like our cities today, Right? Our world today. And God comes and he demonstrates his justice. He wipes the cities out. And so those are examples of some of the judgment of God. His wrath, if you will, towards sin and sinners. But overall, in general, God passed over or left unpunished the sins that were previously committed during this period of time in the Old Testament. For centuries, God had been doing what Psalm 103.10 says. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. You know why? Because God is long-suffering. And according to Peter, God doesn't wish anyone to go to hell. He wishes that we would all come to repentance and trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so God is long-suffering with us. He's withholding His wrath, if you will. And this is why the high priest had to make a sin offering on the Day of Atonement. But remember, this yearly sacrifice was only temporarily. And it only temporarily satisfied God's justice. I love how Thomas Constable explains this idea here. Listen to what he says. Those who offered sacrifices in the Old Testament paid for those sins with a credit card. God accepted those sacrifices as a temporary payment. However, the bill came due later, and Jesus Christ paid that off entirely. Woo! How many of you remember the uh, talk show host, Phil Donahue? He's, you know, he's a has-been now. Some of you, man. If you're over the age of 40, you remember Phil Donahue. And uh, he, but he, he asked this question, and I paraphrase it. How could an all-knowing and all-loving God allow his son to be murdered on a cross to redeem my sins? That's an excellent question because it goes to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way of asking this question is, since God is both all-powerful and infinitely gracious, why didn't he just offer forgiveness to anyone who says, Hey, God, I'm sorry. I mean, some people secretly think and even verbally express that's what God should have done. Then we wouldn't have to deal with the issue of God killing his own son. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, here's the short answer of it right here in your notes. Because God's justice demands that sin must be punished. That's why. Jesus had to die on the cross. A payment had to be paid. Now stay with me on this. Because God is just, 
He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. If God were to forgive sin without proper punishment, He would cease to be righteous. He would cease to be just and holy. That's why we simply can't say, Hey God, I'm sorry, I blew it. And instantly be forgiven. Someone has to pay the price. Now, we follow the same principle in our criminal justice system. Although not perfectly. I'll give you an example. Suppose a man is found guilty of embezzling $6 million from his employer. Gee, where have we heard this in the news? Let us further suppose that just before sentencing in the court, he stands before the judge. He confesses his crime. He begs for mercy and promises never to embezzle money again. Now, how would you and I react if the judge accepted his apology and released him with no punishment? We cry, foul! Injustice! But suppose another man who, has, who is convicted of rape is set free with no punishment by the same judge because he too apologized. Suppose yet another man who is convicted of murder is set free with no punishment by the same judge simply because, I'm sorry, judge. How would we react to that judge? Again, we cry injustice, and then we demand that that judge be thrown in jail. Even in this life, listen, a price must be paid for breaking the law. And that's why when lawbreakers are set free with no punishment, respect for the law and judges disappears. Now, this is, same in the, this is true in the spiritual realm as well. Stay with me. Follow this line of argument here. When sin is not punished, it doesn't seem very, quote, sinful, does it? It's almost like, hey, I can get away with this. It's not too bad after all. In other words, when sin is not punished, we diminish, get this, the gravity of sin and the majesty of God. So what does God do? He devised a plan of salvation whereby his justice would still be demonstrated and his grace would still provide a way of forgiveness for guilty sinners. You see, somewhere, somehow, there had to be a place where God's grace and his wrath would collide. Are you getting it? That place is what? The cross. Which brings us to the last thing the cross meant to God. Our justification is now made possible. Our justification is now made possible. Look what it says in the last part of verse 26. That he, that is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the paradox of salvation is this. God is a God of love. Yes, that is true. And therefore, God wants to forgive sinners. But he is also a God of holiness who cannot and will not overlook sin. So how can God justify sinners and yet not overlook our sin? Well, no one would have ever dreamed of his answer. God sent his own son to die for sinners. And that way, the just punishment for sin was fully met 
in the death of Christ. And sinners now who trust in Christ can be freely forgiven. Now, only God could have done something like that. Only God could come up with a redemption plan before the foundation of the world that includes that. And that's why Paul says God is both just in punishing sin and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus. Now, think of it. In the death of Jesus Christ, all the sins of the human race are fully paid for. Past, present, and future. And as a result, those who trust in Jesus are now forgiven. And we are declared righteous. And we now can be reconciled to God. Listen, our our problem we said at the beginning has now been solved through Jesus Christ on the cross. We can summarize it like this. Notice this in your notes. Our justification is made possible because, number one, God is just. He doesn't overlook sin. He dealt with it through Christ's death, but he's not just just. God is the justifier. He declares righteous those who trust in Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you that have already been declared righteous, you've been declared just, you've been justified, have you ever gone through life then as a Christian, and you're like, man, I don't, sometimes I don't feel very justified. I don't feel very righteous. God's declared me righteous. How come I don't feel it? How come I don't act it? Well, because we have to understand there's a difference between justification and sanctification. I know, another long word. Stay with me. Justification is simply the gracious act of God whereby he declares you righteous. It's our standing before God. In other words, when he sees us, like he looked down on the Ark of the Covenant, he saw what? The Ten Commandments. But on the Day of Atonement, oh, he saw the blood. When we accept Jesus Christ into our lives, his shed blood, it covers us. So now God doesn't see who? He doesn't see Bruce Adrian in his sin. He now sees Bruce Adrian in the righteousness of Christ covering me. All right? So I'm now in standing before God, which can never change. I'm declared righteous before God Almighty. But that doesn't mean I live righteous, do I? Just ask my wife. Ask your wife. Right? Living it is a process. It's the process of sanctification, which one day will be perfected in our glorification when we get to heaven. Woohoo! Amen to that one. Here's the bottom line. Without Christ's propitiation, listen, our justification would be unjustified. It would be immoral. In fact, folks, listen, it would be impossible. This is why what Christ did on the cross makes such a difference in our lives now and for all eternity. The cross was the most horrible and the most beautiful example of God's wrath. And it was the most just and the most gracious act in history. Remember, there was another way God could have demonstrated his justice. Let me say that again. There was another way God could have demonstrated his justice. He could have punished sin and sinners on the spot. But in his divine plan of redemption, God showed that he could be righteous 
and merciful at the same time by punishing Jesus in our place, thereby justifying the guilty without compromising his justice. But on what basis is this all done? Go back to verse 24. Look at it with me. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word freely, man, that is a cool word, isn't it? Aren't you glad for that word, freely? It's translated in some of your Bibles as the word gift. So what does this mean that we are justified by God's grace as a gift? Well, the easiest way to understand this is to look what Paul writes in Romans 4.4 where Paul says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but debt. In other words, think of it this way. When you go to work tomorrow morning, what are you hoping to get? Why do you work? Who said it? Why do you go to work? For a paycheck, to get a wage. You see, when you go to work tomorrow morning, you don't get grace. You get wages. And what is the wages of our sin? Death. But the gift of God, the gift of God is what? Eternal life. So what Paul means now when he says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift is that his, that phrase, his grace, means you can't work for it. And that phrase as a gift means you can't pay for it. You say, how can this be? How can God declare a sinner to be righteous if we don't pay for it and if we can't work for it? Because our justification is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is, Jesus has already paid our sin debt with his work on the cross. And you say, well, how do I know he's already paid for it full and in full and never have to come back and pay for it? Because when he hung on the cross, the last words out of his mouth was, yes, it is finished. It is paid in full. Woo! That's better than KU winning the final four. You say, now how do I get this justification? How how do I get declared righteous before God so that my sin problem is solved and I can be forgiven and I can be reconciled into a relationship with God? Oh, look at it. Through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in verse 22. Go back to verse 22. He says, even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And then in verse 25, Paul says that Christ is the propitiation by His blood through faith. And finally in verse 26, Paul says that God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, listen to me. That is the hardest And the easiest thing to do at the same time. So what do you mean? Faith is it's hard. Faith is so hard because it means, oh gosh, it, it means being humble. It means coming to the cross and acknowledging in my heart of heart 
that I am so guilty before God that there is nothing I can do to solve my problem of sin. And that flies in the face of our pride as human beings. We don't like to think of ourselves in that way. But on the other hand, what could be easier than faith? It doesn't require extraordinary strength or beauty or intelligence. Listen, no one, listen, stay with me. And I know this is a lot of information, but stay with me here. No one will have an excuse on the judgment day that the way of salvation was too hard. God will simply look us in the eyes and he will say, listen, all you had to do was look at the cross. Just look at the cross and trust me to save you. Was that hard? Was it too hard to put your faith in the finished work of my son, Jesus Christ? Was it too hard to accept my free gift of salvation? But it will be too late by then. Our opportunity is today. Listen, if you want to be justified, if you want to be saved from your sin, then run to the cross and turn to Christ with no payment in your hand and no works to your credit and put your faith in Jesus Christ. As we conclude this first message on the cross, I close with one simple question. Are you persuaded? When you look at the cross, are you persuaded by the gravity of your sin and the majesty of God to run to the cross and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you persuaded by the power of the cross? Listen as Kim comes and sings and closes out our our message here with these words, the power of the cross. To see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross.
Are you persuaded by the cross? 
in what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's only one response to the cross, and that's to run to it, and run to the person of Christ, and to respond to Him in faith. Have you done that this morning? Have you done that in your life? Have you been justified and declared righteous? Have you humbled yourself enough to believe in faith? so that you don't have to pay the death penalty for your sin. The praise team's going to come, and as they do, why don't you stand with me, because I want to give us an opportunity to respond. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you've never been justified, you've never been declared righteous. Listen, the praise team's going to sing, and and I'm going to ask you to come. Come to the cross this morning. And maybe you've already done that. I know many of you have. Perhaps you even just want to come here and give thanks for the cross of Jesus Christ. But come. Respond to the cross in faith and be justified and declared righteous. As the praise team sings, will you come? I'll meet you here at the front. I'll pray with you. Have somebody else pray with you. Whatever the case may be, the praise team sings. The cross of Christ, it's dead.